And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Last year, my filmmaking partner, David Levine, and I uh, made a 30 for 30 documentary called This Is What They Want about Jimmy Connors. And the documentary would not have come together without today's guest, Chris Fowler. I mean, if if you've seen the doc, you know that Chris's on-air contribution was key. He gave context. He added humor. He kind of like filled in all the gaps in the story. He gave personal perspective because he was at some of the matches. But it was the uh, off-air contribution that mattered just as much. Uh, I was at dinner with Chris. I grew up with his wife. And, and we were at dinner together. And I mentioned I was trying to do this thing. And it was really hard to reach out to Jimmy. And people had told me Jimmy would never do it. He, he doesn't, you know, he's not, Jimmy's not introspective. And he wouldn't want to focus on his life in that way. And he'd be worried about what it would say. And Chris just casually said, you know, I, I bet I could help with that. And uh, people say all, all sorts of things at dinner, and then nothing ever happens, and they forget about it. Fowler, uh, the next day, uh, texted me and put me together with Jimmy's people, and quietly behind the scenes, just godfathered it and made sure it happened. That's the kind of person he is. Uh, never asked for anything out of it. Uh, was surprised and pleased when we thanked him publicly and was like, I never expected that. And uh, obviously, he's the consummate uh, broadcaster. You know, nobody has done what he's done uh, as well as he has, as long as he has for the same place, or if, if anyone has very few people. I'm fascinated by his loyalty, by his unbelievable uh, ability to both call events and to give them broader context. And I'm really excited that he's coming here to talk about himself, which is something that he rarely ever does, uh, even privately. So uh, the fact that he's going to do it publicly now is really great. Uh, he should be here in a couple of minutes. Uh, I imagine he'll be early, so I'm racing to get this done before he comes here. Thanks for listening. Great. Uh, as I predicted, Chris got here early. So thank you for that ultimate pro. Uh, Chris Fowler, welcome. Thank you, Brian. Great to be here. Uh, I'm uh, thrilled that you came here, and uh, uh, this is going to be fun. So, uh, you know, Chris, the show is called The Moment, and what I, I focus on at the beginning is a moment in somebody's life when uh, – when it's an inflection point, when things are sort of everything's on, on the table. And sometimes that can be, you know, uh, a difficult moment, a bad moment. And other times it's a great moment. And how do you process it? And it, it occurs to me, the first one of these I did was Seth Meyers, and he was having the moment right then. And in a way, I think you sort of are now um, because you just uh, you just announced and committed to be at ESPN and start calling Saturday Night Games for the next 10 years. Is that right? Yeah. So through 2023. Which sounds like a long time from now, but it's exciting. Yeah, it's it's uh, something I've wanted to do for a long time. Uh, you go through these negotiations, and uh, you hope for things. You hope for common ground, and thankfully, we found a lot of common ground with ESPN pretty quickly, and it got sorted out way before the deal expires, which is unusual in this business because I've had them go right down to the wire and beyond, and it's a lot of tension. It's very tough. But I appreciate that. 28 years at one company, and if, if this is now the moment, I'm going to enjoy it. Well, yeah, I mean, how... Uh when did you sort of decide uh, that you you really wanted to add calling these games in and also keep doing game day at the same time? I mean, what went into fa – what factored into that decision for you? Well, deciding I wanted to call games, I was about 10 years old. I mean, right. I think that when you think about a career and you narrow it down, you want to do a career in sports TV, 
the essence of what always drew me to it was being able to document the excitement of a live sporting event. I was 10 years old listening to the radio, Chicago Blackhawks game, Chicago Cubs games with my grandmother. That's what got me into um, this in the first place, the desire to sort of convey the excitement of a live game to a bunch of people like me who were glued to the radio. That shows you how long ago it was. But, you know, you, you sort of navigate through the business and you, you take the opportunities that are available. It all was fun and rewarding to me. Game day has been wonderful, but ultimately you want to document live sports events. It's what drew, drew me to tennis. And getting back in the booth in college football was a, was a high priority. I'd done it for four years in Thursday and um, had to give that up just for, for scheduling conflicts with game day. But I'd always wanted to get back in the booth. The only game that really works with game day is the Saturday night game where there's a great deal of overlap. You, you dovetail your preparation. Uh, Kirk Herbstreet, my, my partner uh, on game day for, for 19 years, and he'll be in the booth with me. He's done it well for six or seven years. So it's possible to blend the two responsibilities. As crazy as it sounds, you can pull it off. And I always knew that I wanted to, to stay on game day. And, and if we could work it out, it convinced everybody it was a good idea, which wasn't automatic. That's been documented. But uh, ultimately, uh, it did work out. Well, yeah, I want to get back to the 10-year-old thing in a second because uh, I'm so interested that for you, you know, I, I know that you started doing journalism very early and um, were on the radio, you know, high school stage, college, and you always focused on it. And I'm interested in the fact that it was always married to sports for you because, in a way, you could have done it in any area that you wanted it. Uh, but, you know, to stay on the, the difference between you and other people doing these two jobs is that um, you are famous for the way within the industry for the way in which you prepare. Uh, and so two things, I guess. One is, I mean, I asked some Grantland people, uh, what would you want to know? And came back from a couple of people. You know, Chris is so legendary for his prep. <laughs> how good to hear. How are you, though, going to I know you say they dovetail, but it's it's not exactly the same. How, because you you write the show also. I mean, you, unlike Kirk, mm -hmm. I mean, you write game day. Yeah, such as such as it's written. I mean, it's an ad lib show, but it has to be prepared. I mean, you have to know uh, a lot about a lot of games, not as much as you would about the two teams on, on Saturday night. But the preparation is pretty broad and it goes deep enough because it's a three hour show and our audience is very educated. So I can't go out there and say something they've heard all week long. And, you know, it, it's it's a challenge. I love a challenge. I mean, I, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I, we're going to take it a year at a time, but I'm. I'm excited about the challenge. It's not uh, alien to me. You know, Brian, when you do tennis, as you know, these matches can and do go four, five, six hours. And I've done a six-hour tennis match. So your your attention span gets honed, your focus, your concentration. It's not going to be daunting to me to do a three-hour show in the morning, wait eight hours, and do a three-and-a-half-hour game at night. I've done that kind of thing. You do day-night matches. And I think only through practice and repetition – does your your ability to focus that long get honed? And you'd, you'd be surprised what you can do when you're when you're engaged and you get the adrenaline flowing. I mean, if you can't get excited at Saturday night doing a big college football game in that atmosphere, you really shouldn't be in the business. I mean, I'm not going to nod off in the booth because I'm tired from no. game day. I promise you. No, I mean, of course, your passion as a broadcaster. There's no question about it. it, it you know, but the the lifestyle of flying in game day, the fanatical fans, your interaction with them, which is an important part of what you do when you're there on those weekends. Uh, and then, you know, doing the actual sort of granular level of prep tennis, you're preparing for the tournament. Mm -hmm. it, there's a, a consistency. You've prepped for these players. You know them for a long time. 
do you do you feel like um, as you study, you have to clear your time in a different way to prepare for these two things? Well, I love the preparation, and that's key. I don't care what yeah. it is you do. I, I always felt like I was cramming for a big test, but I love the subject. And the, the test comes every Saturday morning, and um, you learn how to study efficiently, and you love it while you're preparing, and and that leads to success most of the time. I think that um, you know you prepare for a game differently because you really dive into the two teams, and you try to know everything about them. You watch tape. You make the phone calls. You talk to opponents. You talk to the, the coaches and the assistants and the players, and you really – and I've done enough, you know, prep for games and big tennis matches that I love that narrow focus, um, where you know that that everything uh, from from start to finish. Know the history of the of the school, the stadium, the history of the rivalry, the history and the background of the two coaches before they got to their respective schools. Everything as much as you can absorb and and spit back out. You always over prepare. You always learn too much, and you never know what you're going to need. But I enjoy that part of it, and I don't get bored doing it. Um, I like the the solitude of the hotel room on Friday night when you can shut everything else out and you really focus and and uh, prepare, and then and then you you go try to pass the test on Saturday. Do you have pr- pr- people producers who help give you materials? Do you go chase it down yourself? Do you have a narrative in mind ahead of time? Yeah, there's a big there's a big team, and I think you have researchers that that help you. You have researchers that do broad stuff that they put out the same kind of stuff every week, and you pick and choose. I have a guy that that works for me, uh, Zach Gilbert, who's Brad Gilbert's son, who's right. a, a very smart kid, Cal graduate, and he kind of does more specialized stuff for me. I say, focus on this, this, and this. Go on social media. What are Auburn fans saying? Uh, tell me, uh, give me some offbeat things. And he'll give me links, and it's more tailored to filling in the gaps. But the, the support staff for game day is is terrific. And, and the researcher that sits on our set and has um, held all of our hand for 18 years, and Chris Felica, is a huge part of the show. He actually appears on camera now, and we brought him in because viewers connect with that kind of um, you know lifelong College football. And do you guys all talk about what the narrative is going to be? In other words, what the big story? We talk less than you think about it. We don't want to over rehearse. I don't want to know what Corso is going to say. I don't want to know what Kirk is going to say. And they don't want to know what each other is going to say. We don't sit around in meetings and, and rehearse our comments. We used to. Then we figured out that a lot of good stuff gets left in the meeting room. Right. That makes total sense. You'd rather just talk yeah. it out and say you, you, you trust them. They're going to be preparing in the way that they prepare. Makes meetings a lot faster, too. <laughs> if you have to hash right. out every comment. I mean, we all see shows that are like that. I think a viewer, whether or not they realize what's going on, you can sense it when you watch a show. This guy turns to the camera and says his piece. Cut to the next single shot. That guy says his piece. Well, that's because that's rehearsed. They've gone over that in meetings. Maybe a producer has helped craft that comment in the issue in the, in the interest of efficiency. Well, you know, our show, we have the luxury or the curse of being three hours. So we have plenty of time to kick around a topic and we don't have to be airtight. We don't have to get your comment in, in 17 seconds and get out and go to the next guy. I mean, there's times when you do that. But for the most part, our, our conversations are pretty free form. And that's how you can get away with having them unscripted and unrehearsed. Well, what I think is great is... um. The, the amount of passion that you have for this stuff still. <laughs> what, do you, what explains that, do you think? Because it's not just for the How sports. How could you not be passionate about it? I mean, this is a job that I get to do uh, and, and live a good life because of, and I get to talk about my two favorite sports. I mean, honestly, I'd have to be a moron to, to whine about any aspect of this. We all have our days. You get on a plane, the flight gets canceled, something goes wrong. But honestly, I mean, you have to sit, and, and and realize how 
fortunate you are. I mean, I have a gig, even within an industry that a lot of people would like to be in, I, I have, through good fortune and tenure, and I think some pretty good gut instinct decisions along the way, I've been able to craft something where I, I taught college football and tennis, two sports that are my co-favorite sports that are really different, that take you to really different places. They don't really conflict too much in the calendar. I mean, that's really lucky, Brian. I'd have to be an idiot to focus on what doesn't go well or my, you know, human bitches and moans about what, what, but, what comes but, up. You, you got to just push that aside and realize you're fortunate. But as you know, a lot of people who, who do what you do, when they get to a certain level of success, um, first of all, they want more. They want to try to, not more money necessarily, but... No, they want but, more money. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> money too. But they... More FaceTime. I, I understand people want more of everything. They want more of everything. And they they sometimes, and we've talked about this, um, they sometimes uh, affect sort of like a jaded thing about the, about sports. They start to look down on sports. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and you you don't put that posture on, and you're po- and, and you stay. So some guys, it seems to me, will just show up and, st- and go at a certain point. You know what? Just give me what you want me to read. Give me that you do the work. Uh, you do the prep. I'm going to show up. I'm a broad. I talk. You're talking about gra- looking at your show in this granular way of how it's put together. What do you think makes you? Oh, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to be like a virtuous person or something like that. I, I've never tried to make it. First of all, about quantity. Um, I'm not trying to be on TV as much as I can. I'm not trying to be in the highest rated shows that I could find. It's never been about, um, you know, financial reward for me. It's been about the experience. I was an intern in college at a local station in Denver, and I saw the grizzled veterans of local sports, and I saw what they were like on the job. And it's a lot of what you just described. They would go out and they would do their five or six minutes and read scores and it would be less if there was a snowstorm and sports right. got cut back. Right. And then I would see him go to the bar and have a few pops and try to numb themselves to the fact that this job that they thought they always wanted to do had become this. And that's not to degrade local sports casting. I was, it was more of a, of a comment on the reaction to people after years in this business. They do sort of become jaded. They do forget what it was about the job that attracted them to it in the first place when they were kids. And I, I vowed never to let that happen, to always do something if I could, if I was lucky enough to be able to construct a career, do something that I felt challenged me, that was fresh, that was different, where I could be authentic, where I wouldn't sound jaded. And I wouldn't use the job as a vehicle to show I'm a funny guy. I'm an interesting guy. I think that's what you're talking about. And I'm not going to name names here no. as much as I like you. People listening would know because everybody can sense it. When someone's inauthentic in this job, when they, they don't have a genuine passion, the passion isn't deep enough. The passion may be for them to see themselves on camera more than to describe the sport. I think it comes through. And then then sports becomes a vehicle or a platform for them to get something else out there rather than just relating the event. It becomes about them and I just, I just never wanted to be that guy, and I hope that people don't think I am. No, it's clear, it's clear that they don't. I mean, as you know, uh, you know, the the world of of now commenting on media is its own kind of media, and the, uh, you know, when this announcement came out, it would have been very easy for people to take shots at you. But uh, it seems to me people sense that you're genuine, and that you're not out there promoting yourself. Uh, 
and that you're you're very you're well liked. Um, you know, you've you've you're covering uh, college football about which people have incredible passion and uh and you know even your your partner had to like move away because of issues <laughs> well, i mean why do you think you've been able to um uh, engender you know with uh pe- you know people's um sort of return loyalty to you well first of all thank you um given the landscape i think i've gotten up pretty easy there are plenty of people that don't like me, and I've said plenty of things in 28 years that have pissed people off. And it's just your hair. That they, it's only yeah. your hair that they don't like. Well, it's yeah. too. It's too. For, honestly, <laughs> it's unfair. I mean, why should you have gray. all those skills and then the hair too? You know, that doesn't. I mean, honestly, for the rest of us, it's really all about the hair, anyway, isn't that's, it? That's a brutal. Business. Yeah, get out. Go out there with uh, with Stanley Tucci's head, and let's see how you do. No, but seriously, what do you I, think? I it think is? I don't know. I think that you know, it's flattering to hear that. It's been gratifying to see the reaction to this new contract because. It is sort of rare in the the era of snarkiness, and while people, I think, with the, the do the job of covering media that cover sports, there are a lot of smart people that do that, but there are also a lot of people who feel the need to be the first with the quip, For and sure. you, you don't want to be seen as being, you know, uh, in the pocket of the networks or kissing up the talent, so you have to be negative, and, and you have to be a little snarky and smart-assy, and that, that sort of goes with the territory, and I've been you know, the brunt of that occasionally, but, but not often. And when I, when I was, I probably had it coming a lot of the time, but for this announcement, it's been really interesting. It's been gratifying to see that people feel like, you know what, um, you deserve it or it's nice because you've spent a lot of time at one company and you spent a lot of time in the sport of college football. And, um, although it's a pretty daunting task and you're stepping into a pretty huge legacy, you know, names like Chris Schenkel, who did the job when I was a kid. Keith Jackson, I think, is the best who's ever done it. You know, Brent steps into that legacy. He's a legend. He's done a great job. And yes. now you, you step into that. And I think it'd be right for people to have doubts. It'd be right for people to say, wait a minute, what makes you deserving of this? That's okay. I mean, just listen on Saturdays, and I hope the questions will be answered. I have my own answers already that I had to sell myself on this job. But, you know, it, it's it, you're inheriting something. This is when I took over tennis. You know, I I took over at ESPN for Dick Enberg and for Cliff Drysdale. And these guys are legends. legends. And you don't, legends. you don't think you sit in the Wimbledon box and think about the fact that you're putting your voice as part of a team doing a Wimbledon final that you grew up listening to Dick Enberg do in that same box. I mean, you know, those that that's the kind of thing that it's why you're in the business, Brian. You know, it gets you going for sure. because yeah, you absolutely. know you better rise to it. But it's also people are not going to love everything about what you do. I mean, you got to be a little bit thick skin and tough enough to deal with it. You, you step into a new role, a new sport, as I did when I jumped into tennis 2003, and people are, what in the hell is this football guy doing in this sport? They don't know I was a fan since 1972, and then I, I followed the tour around. It's not their, how would they know that? You have to sort of slowly prove yourself. And I sucked in a lot of respects at calling a tennis match when I stepped in there. I probably wasn't ready to do the kinds of things that I did. I really wasn't baptized gently. I was thrown right into the Australian Open. I was calling Serena versus Venus in a final with Murray Carrillo, who was working with this guy they hadn't done for this very long, and it it showed. But, you know, over 10, 11 years, you hopefully absorb something, you get better at what you're doing. And, and, um, you know, I I feel good about where we are in tennis now. So in in football, I'm much more familiar with this gig than I was when I first stepped into tennis, and I'm a lot more experienced at it, working with a guy that I worked with for 19 years in Kirk. So, and I also called games a little bit on Thursday with him. So I'm not at all worried about meshing with your partner, which is a big part of the job. 
I'm not really worried about the mechanics of it. It's just, you know, it, it's new. It's 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 something that you have to sort of knock the rust off and, and get back in there and do it. Sure. Uh, and, and and do you think um, you'll still be able to soak everything in and have fun? Hope when so. the work when the workload is now doubled on that Saturday, have you? That's the challenge. That's a good question. I mean, I think that's important. You know, when I did Thursday night and then I did game day at the same time, you show up on Friday and you you basically flushed everything out that you prepared for up till the game because it didn't overlap with game day. Yeah, and then you feel like you're two touchdowns behind in the second quarter, getting ready for this pregame show. And I wasn't the most fun guy to be around. Anybody that works with me would tell you that. I was my way of coping with stressed. the workload was yeah. to be. I, you know, I stress. I don't. I didn't feel stressed. I felt you know challenged. I felt that it was important to focus. But it comes across as being stressed. It comes across as not having any fun. And if you're not having fun doing game day, you're not doing it as well as you should. So I, I finally made the tough decision. I got to step away and and give up the booth. And you know, the travel became easier. A game day expanded to three hours, which is another challenge as of last year. And I had a lot more fun doing it. So. Um, that's a, that's a big thing. I want to make sure that as a host, if you're not having fun, then the guys around you, it's hard for them to enjoy themselves. If you're conveying tension, then that's sort of the tone of the show. That's kind of what a host does. I mean, it's not about my opinions or about me. It's about setting those guys up and showcasing the analysts. That's what the job is. That's what the play-by-play job is too. You call the play, you give the down and distance in the score, and your voice is attached to a touchdown or a an interception, but ultimately you're setting up the analyst. It's about them and their opinions and their ability to say what's going to happen next and what just happened. So if you're doing that role and you're you're tense and you're not sure of yourself, man, these guys sense it. Everybody that works with you can sense that and a viewer can sense it and you're failing miserably if you're acting tense or not confident. Just the fact that you're aware of it. I think will well, help I've been, you. I've been in know, that position, right. and I've been there. I've been there when I was tense. I've been there when I wasn't prepared, and I didn't have the confidence that I should have. You know, it's, I've been in a long time at this, and there's certain times when you know you stunk. You know you didn't do your job. You know that you were preoccupied about something else, and you weren't 100% there for your guys. And you you didn't make it as easy on them as you should have, and you didn't help them shine. And that's where the you know, beating yourself up comes. You know, even after this many years, I, I hold myself to a pretty high standard. If I failed those guys, then that's what they take hard. Well, maybe then it's just a second cocktail. Isn't it? <laughs> it's a second cocktail and you move I on. can't have a cocktail after game day anymore. No, you can't. <laughs> now I have to stay what sober you, all Saturday. You gotta go, for, you go for a quick run or something? I mean, of course, what are you nap, gonna, run, whatever what it takes, do? but it won't be a cocktail. Well, no, but in terms of the, the guys around you, I was going to ask this to you later, but you, you brought it up. Um, you know, you and Gilbert obviously have a blast together. Uh, the when when we're watching, we can sense it, and uh, you know, I get the privilege to text you sometimes mm-hmm. during it, and get I can see that you're having fun. But uh, what is if you had to describe? I've always wanted to know what makes a great play-by-play color man or woman combination. The two, you know, the two people. What do you think you need from the color commentator? That the ideal thing. That's a good question. You know, it's like, so what makes a great band? What, what's the chemistry in a band? Sometimes tension between the people brings out the creative uh, juices, and that, that's what you need. I mean, I work with people um, that, that viewers thought, well, you don't like that guy. Well, I don't know what's going on there. It's interesting. I'm engaged, but I'm not sure if these two guys really like each other. People used to think that I didn't like Dick Vitale. People used to think that I have a problem with Gilbert. 
I mean, Brad Gilbert's Twitter followers will attack me. Why don't you leave Brad alone? The same thing with some other people in tennis. You mean if you give him crap in the booth, yeah, they, they, they don't, don't understand I've been that you've been friends with Brad for years. You know, right, we, we, we're roommates in Wimbledon. We go to each other's house. I mean, we're good friends off off air. But, you know, it's interesting if you can bring on the air that that notion that maybe there is some friction here. I'm not sure what's going on, but it's interesting to listen to. I mean, Dick Vitale, another guy I worked with for 15 years, good friend of mine, but I I felt the need to take the piss out of him or to push him, pressure him, maybe make him go a little farther than he had or that he wanted to right. in, in the interest of trying to make good television or clarify something or just roll your eyes like the rest of the audience when these guys say something nutty, whether it's Gilbert or Corso or... Right, so I work with a lot of characters and sort of, uh, you know, being the and you like that being the surrogate member of the audience where you're sitting there, you know, people are out there going, what the hell is he talking about? What did he just say? And it's my job to sort of sit there and 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 be, you know, their surrogate and sort of clarify what what did you mean to say there? Because here's what I heard. and Here's a lot of other people heard. And, you know, it can make for sparks in the in the booth or on the set. And that's OK, too. So you view it, but I didn't answer your question. No, I, yeah, what I know, I get I, I that, but the, what do you think makes an idea? Like, I'm really, you know, interested in when, what are the what are the characteristics you want the color commentator, you know, the other guy in the in the booth to, to bring? Is it expertise? Is it passion? Is it a combination, or is it just some chemical thing that happens between passion two is, is is essential? If you don't have that, I don't want to work with you. I mean, I haven't had that situation very often, but if someone isn't passionate about their job, the sport. The, the idea that you get to be lucky enough to convey the excitement or your knowledge, expertise to a viewer, then you should get out of the booth. I mean, that's a that's a baseline, bare minimum. you got to be passionate. And I think most of the people who, who will reach a, a high level in this business are, and I, the people I want to work with are, expertise, preparation, that goes without saying. And that's why I feel comfortable going into Saturday Night with Kirk, because he is so dialed in and so prepared and on many different levels. I mean, he lives this sport. He breathes it, eats it, and he, he's a 365 college football guy, and he is embedded in it. So I'm not worried about the preparation. Heather Cox on the sidelines, a total pro. Don't ever have to worry about anything that she's doing out there. So if you have passion, you have preparation, you have a lot, and then you just have to worry about, um, you know, are, are you a good enough listener as a play-by-play guy to be able to absorb what they're doing, get the best out of them, make them go farther, ex, ex, maybe make them explain more, bring up a point that they haven't touched on that you knew they wanted to, or maybe something they hadn't even thought of? You can't do that unless you have a certain amount of stillness in your own brain about what, what the job is. That That's the challenge, Brian, in this business is when you first get into it. Your, your brain is spinning because you're worried about your own thing. How, how am I not going to screw up? How can I get through this and just do my part and not let the team down? When you reach a certain point, it's almost like uh, in any gig I've had, and people maybe could relate to this and whatever they do, it's almost like a very definite point where you turn a corner. It's almost not, not rounding a bend. You turn a corner, and one day you feel like, okay, the nuts and bolts of this job. I've got this. I, I can do this now. I'm no longer worried about screwing up. I'm worried about making it as good as I can. And then hopefully over time you get long past that. When you get to that point, then you bet, especially being a host or play-by-play, play, you need to be aware of every other tentacle out there and, and what they're feeling. This guy's a little down. This guy's not too not too up to speed on that game, but he's great on the other games. You know, you need to sort of navigate that and and you can't do that if you're too wound up about your own thing. I mean, it totally reminds me of uh, uh, Steve Nash did this great interview with Bill Simmons the other day. And, I mean, in the way Nash was talking about, I think, the point guard role. Mm-hmm. 
And when you settle into the point guard role, in a way, you're like the uh, point guard, like point quarterback, guard. whatever. Yeah, you, you know how you a quarterback always said that the right. game's too right. fast. I'll put it back for in a football for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah quarterback. But, no, but I'm sure it's yeah. the same in basketball. Yeah. You know, you, you, there's less guys to look at, and they're not trying to hit you the same way. I, I, I'm, I'm generally going to make a, a football analogy. When you hear people talk about when they're a freshman or a sophomore, the game is very fast for them. You know, anybody sure. that's played, you, you yeah. can't read the coverage because you're just looking at the rush. And when you first start out doing this job in this role, you're you're just trying to figure out where the pressure's coming from up front. You can't begin to read the coverage downfield. That only comes over time. Right. So you, your stillness and um, you've done enough preparation that you can actually just be in the moment. Hopefully. And yeah. react and be aware. But, but I, you know, when I listen, um, I think like the combination of you and Patrick is great, McEnroe, and then you and John is great, too. Uh, but those guys are very different, both terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, is it something that you think about ahead of time before you walk into the booth? Or do you just know, okay, I'm gonna, my job's going to be a little different depending on which guy I'm with tonight? Yeah, tennis is a unique challenge because unlike football where you get kind of married to the same partner for the all season and um, over years, when you do my job in tennis at a typical Grand Slam, you're working with five or six different analysts. And as you said, the personalities are radically different. I mean, it's not the same doing a match with Gilbert or Darren Cahill or Patrick or John or Mary Jo Fernandez or Pam Shriver or Chrissy Everett. I mean, and you do perhaps two or three matches in a day with a different combination of people. And, you know, we we stepped in and did the Wimbledon final and and semi uh, last year. Last couple of years, I think, and and it's been uh, the only time all year that I work with John and Patrick in the same booth. And what's that energy like? It's it, no, no, it's great. I mean, if they weren't brothers, I think it'd be a problem because you really have to step back and be unselfish, and you have to be willing to share. And both those guys can talk all day, and so can I. And you can trample a match if you're not careful. It's much easier to trample the match than it is to have a sense of staying back and letting it breathe. And it's the biggest tennis match in the world, and you better let it breathe, and let the pictures and the players out there tell it. And and I think I'm proud of the way we were able to mesh and do that because it's difficult when you don't work all year with a guy until Wimbledon semi, Wimbledon final. We we have done two matches a year together. And that's like stepping in with a guy in football that, that you don't do a game all season. Here's the NFC Championship game, and next week's the Super Bowl. And go, go for it. Just work it out. Work out the chemistry. And you know, I, I was proud of those guys and, and the effort that we were able to do and uh, and, and not and did, smother Andy Murray's now, do win. You think that, right, and it was your job to be aware of it, you felt. Your all, job, it was all of our job. It was all yeah. of our job to be aware of it. You and know? You, think, you think the other guys were thinking about that in the same way you were? Yeah, I do, because they, otherwise they would have, you know, would have stepped on each other. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, when you have that, that interesting combination – uh, and, and anybody that's listened to them together do the U.S. Open, you know, Patrick is the younger brother and he sort of is the more meat and potatoes analytical guy. He's a guy that had to think his way through matches because he wasn't going to overwhelm the other guy with sheer talent, as John did. And John, when he speaks, you know, brings his unique lens when he focuses on anything. It's it's the Johnny Mac experience yeah. and, and persona that comes into play. And he has been on the biggest stages as a young guy, as an older player, as the underdog, as the favorite, as the loser, and the winner. So when you do those big matches, you you bring all that experience to bear. And you lean on John for that stuff. Patrick's area of expertise, obviously, is the, the point-by-point analytics, knowing the players, you know, being around him and, and watching him year-round. Yeah. So you, you hopefully, those guys will sense 
when it's their time. And then we'll all sense when it's none of our time. It's the player's time and you shut up in the last game which is one of the great moments in British sport as we sit there, Wimbledon center court, Murray's trying to serve it out against Djokovic. Yeah. And if you know enough about the psyche of each guy, you know that if Murray is broken there, and they go back on serve in the third set when he's had a chance to, to end a seven-decade drought of British male Wimbledon champions, if he fails in that moment, hey, it's, oh, yeah. it's up in the air. The whole match is in play. Yeah. Djokovic can turn it. He can win the third set. And then it's, oh, my God. The whole place is tense. Strap in, because Murray might blow this. But, and he and so we we knew that he gets off the chair, and Fred Perry's ghost is swirling around. And I, w- I was proud of the fact it, you know you shouldn't get a gold star for laying out in a big moment. That's just sort of obvious. But the way the game played out, there were seven points played, and we didn't say anything because he goes quickly to forty love. It's triple championship point. Right. Boom! It goes back to Deuce. And I think John said, I can't hold my breath any longer. Uh, and it was the perfect thing to say, because anybody watching that who gets caught up even a little bit, you sense that tension. You're feeling the same the thing other, they are. The other part of that is you had done the work to actually set the moment up ahead. Of t- I mean, yeah. you had set it up for actually, we, you know, for weeks it had right. been talked about and set up. And you guys had set it up so that you could lay out because the context was there for all of us uh, uh, to witness and, and to watch it. You know, the, the tennis thing is uh, interesting to me. We... You and I tend to spend the the largest amount of time we, we spend together is at the end of football season and before the French, right? Right. That's when we tend to ha- like hang out because you're you're here and I'm I'm around and you. Uh, it's clear how much you love it. You get so excited. You know, some guys you would think, <laughs> but I mean, you we'll get that so <laughs> excited about yeah. going over and getting to go do this. No, it's it's really uh, a very charming and. And great thing that that there's something about tennis that feels like magical to you. No, there what is, is it? Do you think? Well, I I love if you want to you know go down the mind shaft of the sport. I really do, and you can you can overwork this topic as many have. I I you know boxing at ninety feet away. But I I don't know about that. I, but I do love the one on one mental and physical battle. I think that we're privileged, whether fans here in this country are, realize it or not, it's a golden age of men's tennis. We're going to miss this era desperately when it passes. The Federer, Nadal, yeah. Djokovic, Murray, the men's game is so brilliant right now. And the guys who are coming up who've, who've had to improve to keep pace, those guys I mentioned are pulling everybody else along. And now you're seeing guys emerge and have you know big runs. And it's whether it's Vavrinka or or Burditch, your guys are playing the best tennis of their careers in their late 20s and into their 30s because, you know, they've had to try to match these great guys. And so I am very passionate about about tennis. And whenever I show up and do something, it doesn't really matter to me, you know, what round it is, what tournament it is, how how small the audience is. Because unfortunately, you know, tennis is a sport that's trying to get regain a foothold in this country not a lot of people Why? watch is it just that there aren't american like what do you think the thing is because you know i love i mean i'm a sports junkie but i mean i love watching uh tennis you know i don't understand why more people don't get it. I, I i i anybody that comes to me and says i'm a huge tennis fan says spread the word we need more of you get up on your on the on the crate you know go to Times square and, and scream about how great tennis is because i don't i don't really get it it's a sport it, for athletes it's a sport where uh you know, mental and physical strength are on display every other day or every day in some tournaments. And I, I don't get why more people don't get it. I mean, there's this thing that in the 30 for 30 that uh, you're, you're in that Dave and I directed where um, Courier is talking about the fact that, that, that in tennis, no matter what, you have to end 
the match. You have to win the final point. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, I don't know if people understand the mental toughness required to be great at, at tennis. No, I don't think so either. It, it, it's akin to golf in that with all the adrenaline flowing through your bloodstream, you still have to have the, the biomechanical part and you have to execute it perfectly. And it's really hard. That's why it's really hard to hit a putt under pressure. It's really hard to do anything in tennis under pressure because it requires such delicate control. And when people are nervous, it's hard to be delicate. And I think that, you know, that that fascinates me. The mental aspect of it uh, has, has always been important. And then I think in recent years, the physical aspect has come into play. And these guys who push each other realize that you have to suffer to win a big title these days. A Grand Slam especially, the best of five, the way the game's become played behind the court. You hear Rafa use the word suffer all the time. And I I started to hang around him and their camp more and talk to him and how he viewed a match. And I think Djokovic is the same way. And, you know, that's that five-hour, 53-minute Australian Open final that I called when I called it at the end as a new definition of suffering for a title. And the, you, if you're not willing to suffer anymore, you, you can't you can't win these titles. Well, yeah, I respect and you, you, <laughs> no, and you would think uh, people would understand it because we love tough athletes in America. You know, people even I, I, don't, I don't know, you're not a big UFC guy. I love the UFC. And I, I, I think like Ronda Rousey uh, really annoys me. She's this fe- incredible female. Yeah. Fighter. I don't know if you've seen her fight have, yet. Yeah. Um, but she kind of plays the villain role. <laughs> but there is something about the fact that this woman keeps getting in there and how just tough and badass she is. But people don't understand the thing that uh, Pete Sampras did when he was basically had the kind of um, uh, cramping from dehydration mm-hmm. that would put people in the hospital. Right. Wasn't he? What was the he was throwing up? He oh, yeah. Was, that's oh, he was just, he was suffering. He was suffering. He, you know, Pete, Pete was a uh, about what's that young that guy's name with the one hand and backhand. We played in that match, that match. Which match are you talking about now? The, it was at the open, right? When he was really puking. And oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. What, I'm not sure the opponent was. I remember that part of it. Yeah. But people don't understand. Guys go through torture oh, yeah. to win these matches. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think that. You, you, they are uniquely suited to a part part of the, uh, the the toolkit you have to have to be at the top of the game is you have to you have to have great endurance. Anymore, you can't win without it. I mean, I'm talking about Grand Slams, which is why I think differentiates those achievements from regular tour stops where you can play a match in in, in an hour. You know, in a Grand Slam, you got to win seven matches and you got to be prepared to go four or five hours because if you don't trust your fitness mentally it messes with you and you see guys lose matches because they know they're not strong enough to go the distance. I got to wrap this up in straights. Or I, yeah. If I lose this fourth set, I got no chance to go the distance. It's the guys who trust their fitness, who who know they put in the work and who know that they're uniquely gifted. Um, I, I think the guys who get to the top, is not anybody can just train and prepare and work their butt off and be great in the fifth set. Not anybody can do that. I mean, I think you have to have a certain amount of natural endurance to, pl- to play that way that long. That, that's great. That's That actually leads into something I, I wanted to ask you, which is, um, you know, people who, who do what I do f- for a living, you know, obviously I, I don't podcast for a living. <laughs> this is, I do this because I love if you getting to be a pretty good. <laughs> I, I love getting to have these conversations, you know, and asking these, these things of people I, I admire. Um, but uh, I'm always asked this question, um, you know, if I go speak somewhere, which is, to become a screenwriter, filmmaker, you know, how much is experience? How much is hard work? How much is luck? And how much of it is just talent? And and to to do the thing you do, uh, 
you started young, you prepared, you've worked for it. But I mean, do you think you have to have a certain kind of brain, a certain kind of talent? Can people want to end up here? What's the what? Do, what do you really think? Ah, uh, that's another good question because I've I've given that talk myself, and I've told people who who want to do this to be very tough on themselves. You know, you look yourself in the mirror, look back at your tape, and and be truthful to yourself about your abilities. And when I was in college, I you know checked out the camera at the University of Colorado. You you go home, you you point the camera at yourself, you hook it up to your TV, the old coaxial cable, and you you look into that camera and you give little mock sportscasts with your apartment wall behind you. That's how I got a job. I got a job in a top twenty market how? based on that kind of a tape. I, I had done some work at campus television. Yeah, walk us through it. So you, well, what, I, what happened? You're at you're at college, and you know. You know, I want to be a journalist, and I want yeah. to be a sports journalist. So I, there was not much you could do in college for sports journalism. You could call the games. This was what nineteen twenty. Yeah, yeah, no, in the eighties. Yeah, in the 80s in Boulder. So there's lots of distractions. You had to shake that off and focus on your future career. Yeah. I sacrificed a lot of social life in Boulder to get ready for this goofy career. No, you 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 do everything you possibly can, which is my first advice to anybody that I speak to who's in high school or college and approaches me is take every opportunity to do every extracurricular activity, invent some if they're not in front of you, and, and write and and turn down the sound and do mock sportscast. But certainly when you get the opportunity to be in front of a microphone, um, you know, back in the day, you had to check out a video camera from the, the department at, at school and do what I was describing. Now, everybody's got three devices that can take video. Right, so there's no excuse for not practicing and this generation of, of people who want to get into this business, they basically grown up looking into a camera. It's it's not a, a weird experience for, for young people to look into a camera and and communicate, which is which is why I think you're gonna get a, a whole bunch of really talented people. I mean look, look at the singing contest shows out there. You know, sure. Where do these kids come from who can be that great that young? Well they've grown up around it. Wait, this and is, I, this is, this is, yeah. this is no, going back to to the thing, I think I wanna restate it because I think it's important when you kinda of casually jokingly said all these distractions that you avoided. <laughs> I don't want to go to the distractions. You're not going to go to the distractions. I understand what the distractions are, but what I'm re really interested in is, did you really know, okay, I want to do this really competitive, hard thing, and I'm, uh, I am consciously going to spend more time? In other words, the way that an athlete would. Did you yeah. really do that? Yeah, I haven't made that comparison, but that's actually a pretty good one. You, you have to treat um, your college time almost as a career. You're not getting paid very much, if anything, but you need to take the opportunities. And, and I did give up Fridays and Saturday nights because I would drive from, from Boulder to Denver to, to sit in the office of, of the daily newspaper, the Rocky Mountain News, and take the box scores as they were called in to you and enter, enter them for the, what, what used to be called the agate page in a newspaper. Then I would go out and I would cover prep sports games on Fridays and Saturday nights and write little stories. You get like a couple paragraphs. And that was the beginning. Now, that, that, that was fun for me. It wasn't a huge sacrifice, but I was giving up what normal college stuff was. And then I would work for sports information. And, and University of Colorado's football team was horrendous at that time, one of the yeah. worst programs in America. And in the pre-computer age, I used to sit in the office on an IBM Selectric with the white tape to correct whatever mistakes you had and keep stats for the worst team in America. And that was my Saturday night in Boulder. You yeah, know, I think that's and, 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 really so, uh, important. No, I mean, I think that that kind of thing, people, 
Right. I mean, it's not a noble sacrifice, but it, it just gives you a snapshot of, I think, what what is necessary to, to sort of get that. Yeah, it's, no, it's not a, it's not a noble sacrifice, but it is when people look at, oh, Chris Fowler, he's now doing these, you know, suddenly oh, Chris Fowler's been on ESPN 30 years and now he signed this deal. You know, it's important to know that that Chris Fowler at 19 years old was not just dreaming, but was like working to make the dream happen. I was a sportscaster geek. I mean, I, I was hard to keep a girlfriend in college. I mean, people don't understand. Wait a minute, what? You, 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 we can't go out Friday night or Saturday night. Or I mean, it, it you know, it's not a normal existence. I mean, I'm sure many people can relate. There's many people that have to work their way through college, and and for them, it's a it's a tough thing. I mean, I didn't, um, you know, I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't doing the job to so I could go buy you know, a can of spaghetti sauce, but, but I was, you know, I, I was strapped for money in college too. And I was part of it as having jobs to, to get money. And the other part of it was trying to get ready for this career. So, um, I, I was always mindful of it, right? I actually, I remember clearly the last non-media job I had and it really sucked. It was landscaping, you know, That's lifting railroad brutal. ties to build a go-kart track in Boulder in the heat of the summer. And once the thing got built, you, know, you were the guy wearing the green polyester shirt that lined up the go-karts for the kids. And then when they intentionally drove off the track into the tires because it was fun, you had to go get the cart and get it back on the track. And right, yeah, keep it on the track, kids. And, you know, thankfully, then it lasted about three weeks and somebody called and I, I was able to get a job. And I, I've not had to have uh, a job in the real world since. Which is Oh, nice. that's why going to talk to, you know, Mary Jo Fernandez in a booth at Roland Garros seems like <laughs> a lot better than not. The, not so bad. Yeah. Uh yeah, anytime you go back into somebody successful's uh, life, you find the moments when they made the choice to put in the t- to really put in the time, and it's not right. It's not a surprise. It just seems you know your job in a way similar to it, it, to the outsider. It can seem like well, I mean anyone anyone can do that. No, I mean, you have to be very fortunate and you have to take the opportunities that are given and create your own sometimes. And I think that's what's tough about telling people how to get in this business, because everybody likes the idea of uh, sure they you ending up, you know, on the at top, or, you know, trying to, I want to be Bob Costas. OK, well, so do millions and millions of other kids. Yeah. Are you good enough? Are you willing to pay the price and and um, and put in the effort? But I, you asked me a question a while ago, and I, I, I do think that I, I'd be dishonest if I didn't say that. You know, natural ability plays a big part in this. You know, I happen to have zero talent playing the guitar. Now, my first career choice might have been to be a rock star. Yeah, you love. If music. only I could sing or play music. You know, little problem there with trying to reach that career goal. Well, not everybody is going to be able to have the the natural things that come into play when they want to be on television, whether it's news or, or sports, whatever. And you have to be honest with yourself. And I, what I tell people is, look, you can overcome natural anxiety lack of natural talent in some respects, you can overcome it. But understand that you're behind the pack. You're behind a whole bunch of other people that also want to do this job. And for them, it might come more naturally. And understand that if you're going to overcome that, you need to work really hard. And it might not even happen for you still. I, I would never I would never be able to be in a band. I don't have the talent for it, no matter how many hours I practice. Right. Now, there, are people who would think, there are people who say, well, if you really put in the time, but I tend to agree no, that it's can... a combination of, because, of, you know, if, if, uh, if Chris Russo would have uh, gone to a, a broadcasting school and said, uh, 
I want to be a broadcaster with that voice and the speed thing. I'm going to be a broadcaster. You look at a guy and go, you're out of your mind. But like something fueled that person. Yeah, but no, you know, I did. I'm not saying you have to have everything. I'm not saying that you. Uh, yeah. But I, and I think you can craft a career. I think you can, you know, you can have somebody that isn't the most musically gifted practice hard, work hard, and play music for a living. I'm sure. But I'm talking about people see. Yeah, getting to the they, highest they level. They want to be Jim sure. Nance. They want to be Joe Buck or Costas. Those guys. You know. you Maybe you could do it. I'm just saying it's going to be really hard. Those guys are all naturally talented to go with all the things that they've also done to to achieve what they've achieved. No, I tend to agree with that. I, I think that um, when people ask me about uh, writing, I do think that talent is yeah. sort of like the you know the talent to communicate with words. You have to have that. But I, I guess what I think is you may not know whether you have the talent without putting in a tremendous amount of work. The talent doesn't always show itself early, right? It can show itself over time. It can, it can. But I think in this business where a large part of it is looking into a piece of glass and connecting with other people, you can tell pretty quickly. And that's why I say, you know, be honest with yourself, be a harsh critic, because if that is really a source of anxiety for you, if, if you just look into a camera and it's hard Right. To, to overcome that, you can do it, but just know that there are many others, especially of a younger generation, for whom that is no problem. Right, but they are that's natural. natural. And if you're natural, then you've already overcome that, and, and the anxieties and the worries uh, of that part of it are behind you, and you can focus on performance. It's just, you know, if, if, if sitting in a room, an empty room with a microphone freaks you out, which it's a little freaky experience. I've, I've hosted radio shows. We're the only one in there. You're looking through the glass and there's a guy. Then you realize there's people listening to you around the country. That's pretty freaky. It takes people a long time to overcome that sometimes. It, and if it does, you, maybe radio is not for you. <laughs> when you're, so when you're doing that, when you're talking on the mic and out there, who are you talking to? In your mind, who's the audience that's watching? You know, they, they'll tell you, you should, you should, Imagine one person. Imagine a close friend. I've never actually gone that far in the exercise. No, I'm saying what are you? But who, yeah. are, you, what are, you, what are you trying? Who are you communicating to? I guess is what I, I'm actually, asking. I, I don't think of a, of a single person. I think when we do game day, for some reason, I always imagine groups of people watching and and people who are equally passionate about uh, a college football Saturday as we are. And and I think that one of the things that's important about the success of that show is that, in my opinion, anyway we've done a good job identifying the customer and speaking to them. And we know exactly what that show is. I think a lot of shows don't know what they are. They're supposed to be. We're a pregame show. So from nine to noon on Saturdays, it's our job to anticipate what somebody wants to know and mirror their excitement about kickoffs about to happen around the country. And, you know, it, it, it frees you up. I think that, that it helps you avoid the pitfalls when you when you produce a show for a customer that is um, like minded, you know. I, well, but like when you're, the, is there a difference in your head if you're broadcasting um, a mid season hardcore? You know, if you're broadcasting Indian Wells, are you in your head? Are, are you doing that a little differently than the finals of Wimbledon when sure. you know that cat? Like, oh, yeah. are, in, are you like, oh, I'm speaking to a tennis fan at Indian? You know, yeah. third, Jason Isner playing uh, Burditch in the third round at Indian yeah. Wells. In your head, are you speaking to tennis geeks and then differently at the at Wimbledon? You have to. You have to understand lots of things. In tennis, you know, people might be watching at a bizarre time of day. So we're very aware when we do the Australian Open that we're talking to customers who are 
fighting to stay awake or they've set the alarm and they're just trying to guzzle some coffee to get up and be with you for that match or making a sacrifice to be there. At Wimbledon, in the finals, you're speaking to people that are just waking up. And, and maybe only watch one tennis match yeah, a year. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, so, so the, the time of day, how, how knowledgeable you think the audience might be, what their sensibility is, how, how much they might know about the players. Our thing about being a tennis fan, and I'm not going to get off on this too long, is that you, know, you tune in, you don't know who for sure you're going to watch play. Right. You, 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 make, you make great sacrifices to be a viewer of this sport that you love. Now, I wish we had more of them, but you understand why they are, they are demanding like, don't step on this match. Don't screw up this experience for me because I waited all day or I sacrificed my freshness and my job to be here with you at this time. And I want to watch Roger Federer play. So shut up and, and keep the focus there. But on the other hand, you know, you're also at times bringing in people that are not well acquainted with the sport or the stories of the people. I mean, Federer they are, but, you know, his opponent or two lesser known guys, you, your obligation is to bring them along too. come on into the tent. We're not going to talk over your head. I got to make sure the analyst doesn't get down the, the mine shaft and be too technical every point about the construction and the mechanics that are that are. Well, that are reachable to only the knowledgeable people. I mean, the answer is, I think, yeah, you're not doing this simplistic exercise of, like, I'm speaking to one person, but it's clear you are actually giving a lot of thought to who's out there. Yeah, you do. I mean, it, it's sort of, at this point, uh, second nature, but I think you, if you're not thinking about who's listening, we, we do this for a customer. I mean, we're not in a vacuum there. You know, people are listening, and right. if, you, if you're failing your customer... You're not doing no, it's your job a great well. point. I mean, in a tennis film, you say they're sacrificing, and they're also in America. You're sacrificing your dignity when you're watching. I mean, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be, I'll, I'll be late at night. Like sometimes I go through these jags of watching a lot of mid, yeah. you know, midweek tournaments on not, on Tennis Channel because that you know you guys aren't covering yeah. it. And I mean, my entire family will come in and just completely mock me. But how often do you click off a of, mat? This this sucks. This is on the way to being six one six love. I'm out of here. We fight that all the time. I mean, right. tennis at its best, I think, is as good as sports. I, I want you to know, whenever I turn you off, I feel bad. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> I do feel that. badly about it. I don't take it personally. In watching I don't take it personally. Match with, you know, uh, one very tennis specific question. Then I have a few more things. Um, uh, and, and that is this, and this isn't uh about the equal compensation or anything, but. Does part of you wish the women played three of five? Because I, I just want to say, I wish the women in the majors played three of five. I want to see th- a fifth set with these incredible athletes pushed to the edge of their capacity. It, 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 it seems to me like, um, like it would the the mental game would would become incredible if they did it. Did, does it ever occur to you? You know, it's an interesting conversation. It'll never happen in a million years. I, th- I think the Why? trend is that uh, there are people who think that the men's tennis should not be best of five at the majors, certainly not in the early but rounds. But that's not going to happen, is it? I hope not. But I, I do see I see the point. To, be answer, to answer your question, um, women are just as capable of playing five sets. That's I mean, what I, I think. And a lot of the, the top ones are. They're I mean, such I great athletes. It, it, would, it would change the equation because there are more top players in the women's game that are not supremely fit. I'm not going to be controversial about this. I think it's pretty there. You can get by this is just as you could in the I'm men's game. I'm not asking game. you to be controversial. I mean, you just basically said women aren't as good athletes. No, but I didn't say I, that. I, I said, I said no, that fitness isn't as important when you're playing two out of three. That's and what I, yeah, if, okay. If men's right. tennis never featured three out of five. You, the the, the premium on fitness and endurance wouldn't be there. That's a great point. Because you only got to play 90 minutes, maybe, maybe two hours max. A, so yeah. women's matches aren't, you know, you have to be fit 
to go three tough sets, especially if they're rallying from the baseline and grinding away. You know, at, at times, women's matches. But plenty can, of women, as you know, because you cover the matches, Sam Stosar and yeah. oh, the Williams sisters fit. and Maria, there are fit women. Oh, no, of course there are. I know you, I know I'm saying, I know are, you talk about it all the time. Women, there are also women and guys, less, less guys, again, because you can't be successful. You can't even hope to have success at a major unless you're fit. And, you know, I think that uh, at the top of the women's game, they could play best three of five. I don't think it'll ever happen. I, I think that, uh, you would know. Would you want to see it or you would? Here, here's my idea, which is bizarre. And people people feel like I'm crazy because they, they, they equate it with Little League Baseball. I think you should have, and I don't like to call it a mercy rule, yeah. but I think in three out of five at majors, there should be a minimum benchmark for number of games won to extend a match beyond two sets. Because, you know, do you, I don't know if fans realize this, but in a, a, balancing out the greatness of the five-set match in men's tennis and how it differentiates the majors and how it brings out the drama and all these things come into play, which I love too, it causes scheduling problems. At the right. U.S. Open, you're going to get one men's match per day session and two women's matches. And that's the same way everywhere because they cannot schedule two men's matches with the potential of going four hours and beyond for television, for fans, so what you get is you get less men's tennis on the show courts. You, may, you get it tougher to watch on television. Maybe it tunes in. You're talking about like a five-hour time commitment to watch a match. People can't do that. And in the modern attention spans, the argument is they can't hang with that. Now, plenty of people can. And the hardcore say, screw them. This is what makes it beautiful. Yeah, and I, and I get it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to – I love that part about it. But the trend is sort of look and see, can we shorten matches? So let's say, let's say, you know, let's say Nadal's beating a guy in clay over two sets. The first set wins 6-1. Now it's four love. And whatever the rule is, you got, let's say you got to win four games in two sets or this, it's over. It's tap out after two. No best of, uh, no, no, no. That's too many games. Four is too many because you can point to okay. great moments. Let's say it's three. Yeah. Say whatever, you know, if, you, if you're getting beat 6-1, six, 6-2, six, is it theoretically possible? Has it happened in the history of tennis you could turn it around? Yeah. Do you know what the percentages of that is? You're going to continue that match on the 1% chance that the guy's going to get injured, something's yeah. going to happen. I guess Jimmy did two. I guess Patrick was one, two, and two. I think it was two and yeah, two. It happens. When Jimmy it came happens. back. Uh I think Patrick would probably like that. But, uh, no one's know. ever going to adopt that. I'm just saying that right. if, if you want to uh, So you want to go – you think there's an argument to go the other way, well, actually. I, I think that it would be interesting to have a guy – you want to continue this match? Do you want to play on? Because people tap out all the time. The, you, these guys, right. you'd like to ideally see f a fight to the finish. You, you see a lot of submission in tennis. Well, yeah, what about – so uh, we have to, I have to just ask you about it because you're so close to the game. I mean, what do you think about the sort of corruption and betting thing in, in tennis? Do you think that it's controllable? Do you think that it's rampant in, in the small European tournaments? You, well, I think it's, it's impossible to control the betting. You can control whether a match is fixed, I guess, by just having greater scrutiny. I, I think that – um, there, there's different tentacles to the betting thing, and it's a complicated issue, and I can't claim to be an expert on it, but, but I mean... No, I'm talking about, yeah, the actual sort of, like, influencing the match. Well, players being being involved in it? Yeah. Because the, the, the tennis gambling thing is that when you, when you... Most of the betting's done online, and what they're worried about cheating is that you can actually beat by a second or two the computers that are used online to to reflect a change in score. And I, right. people who don't know, you can bet on the outcome of a match after every single point. The live betting goes on big time, and and if you can just be a little bit quicker, like someone has a laptop or a, or a PDA in the court, and you can say, uh, Djokovic gets the break, 
And then he does. And, and then he does. But like he's already two, done it. Two seconds yeah. later, you can communicate that. You can get a bet in. And, you know, just hosting. Now, in terms of the players. Yeah, what do you think? I think they have a pretty good pretty good handle on the computer control. You, you bet a big amount on a weird match, and it, it triggers it now. I mean, I, I, a top guy's never going to dump a match. I just don't believe that. I just, you know, I agree with I, you. they don't need the money, first of all. The, the consequences are a lifetime ban, a disgrace forever, versus what? how much money can you make? These guys don't need the money. Now, in a smaller tournament, um, you know, it's, it's, it's possible. possible. Yeah, it's possible. Have I mean, you ever I, been calling a match and had the sense that either – Something was. I'm not going to ask you to name the match. I'm saying, have you ever been calling a match and, and think something doesn't smell right? Now it could be a guy wants to leave town or something oh, yeah. where you've. Yeah, not, I bet never suspected it's gambling. I bet you, you you see plenty of matches where the guy's given less than less effort than he should. So just a couple last things, and before I let you uh, get on with the rest of your life, um, as you have become uh, a celebrity in your own right and somebody who's known and have been able to sort of um, make friendships with certain athletes, has your has your feeling about athletes changed in any way? Has your fight to stay objective become more difficult? It's hard to be friends with people in a sport you cover. I'll be honest. I, I yeah. sort of made a decision to not get too close to people that are in sports that I cover, whether it's a college football coach or a tennis player. Not that they're inviting me to their vacation house anyway, but no. But you're around them. Yeah, you could I think be, that become friends. You know, I've been friends with athletes, and I, I know how hard it is. Um, to try to be objective, you know, and, and I think that, you know, people in my business make choices. There, there are plenty of people who are great friends, hang out socially, spend time with coaches or players. And it's, I, I just think it's really hard. I think, I think you can't do your job without letting that come into play. And the, the trick is that by being friends, by being in inner circle, sometimes you get great information. So you're serving your customer because you're giving them things that they might otherwise know. But you're also drawing a line like you're not you're not going to reveal everything you've heard because then you're betraying a friendship right. and you're, you're going to. And you that might find yourself off. pulling during the match for somebody. Yeah, I don't know that I would do that. I mean, I, it looks look you. Yeah, that, that's that's obviously, you know, if, if you're do great you ever, friends with this coach and you don't like that guy, you know, I suppose you could it could enter into your mind. I mean, I I just try to stay off that. I mean, I I, I think that, uh, you know, you, if you get close or, or feel like you have a special affection for something, um, you, you really can't be objective. And, it, and when you have to do the hard job of harshly criticizing them at a big moment or or, or calling them out on something, it's tough. What is it, you know, I'm sure that as you were making your decision, um, you were factoring in things like the possibility of ever covering professional football or covering the Olympics. Um, yet you stuck with college football. Now, do you ever want to cover pro football? Do you, would you want to call professional football down the road? Could you see that as part of your life? Does it matter to you? Um, you know, I think this, the new arrangement with ESPN that's going to go till 2023, it's almost 60 years old. I'm not thinking about anything beyond that. I mean, certainly I entertained ideas because it was important to me to, to be in the booth and, and call football games. And you figure, okay, well, I'm not going to take anything for granted. That's for sure. I mean, I, of course. Yeah. You know, so you, so you, but was well, there an allure to pro? I'm saying is for you, does college is. football give you everything? Oh yeah. No college football, I think is superior to the NFL. I like, I like it more. I, I enjoy being around it more, but I also like the NFL. I mean, I love the sport of football. So that's football played at its highest level. It's a different texture. It's a different vibe to be around it. Um, Something that, to me, I look as, a, as an outsider because I've never covered the NFL. Yes. But 
But I love watching NFL football. I mean, the, the playmaking yeah, ability. You wouldn't of these rule guys. out ever doing it. It's no, not. I wouldn't rule anything out. And the Olympics has always been an attraction for me. When I was a kid watching Jim McKay right. host the Olympics on ABC, I'm 10 years old when I watched Munich unfold. And that, that you know, incomprehensible tragedy and, and the intrusion of terrorism into what was at the time oh, yeah. thought to be this idyllic amateur sports experience was so horrifying. And to watch him navigate it with such humanity and such smoothness, I thought this is that that's the best in the world. Who who could hope to do that? I mean, I was just in awe of that. So later to get a chance to work with Jim McKay and horse racing was a great experience. And I think the idea of the Olympics um, has always been attractive to me. I, I still I get the Olympics. I get choked up watching sports. I know I never watch. I really feel it. And I think um you know, I, so it would be great to sure, do that. Sure, working so. the Olympics is, was always something that I thought about. ESPN doesn't have the Olympics, so you make a professional decision. But um, well, maybe ABC gets keep, them. At I'll some just keep point. being they a fan. I mean, jump I guess. over, and then uh, lastly, um, quickly, do you think um, just because you're such a fan of this stuff and you know the X Games and all of it, do you think Summer X events should be in the Olympics, like skateboarding? <laughs> do you want to see? That's that? not a question I expected from you. Um, you know. I don't know about that. I think the Winter X sports have fit really well in the Winter Olympics, and they've been necessary to draw in younger people. Skateboarding, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's done globally. It's young. I have massive respect for the kids. I, I was a terrible skateboarder, so I have no talent in that. I, I so respect... skateboarding and guitar wasn't neither of those. No, are gonna no, 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 no talent at all. I mean, I think there are plenty of X game sports you you could sort of think about. You know, moving to the Olympics, I think, frankly, that there's a lot of sports in the Summer Olympics. Winter Olympics calendar, if you didn't have some of the things that we just saw in Sochi, the okay. snowboarding, you know, I think it's pretty thin. I, I think that, frankly, you know, some of the new sports, that they, they lack gravitas, but they, they are telegenic okay. and they're exciting to young people. And you've got to do something to engage younger audience in the Olympics and, and going forward. Uh, it's more of a challenge in, in the was more of a challenge in the winter games than it was in the summer games. So last question, um, which is one I think you probably did expect, which is um, how do you think the playoff system is going to change the story uh, in the week to week of covering the games? Well, we'll all find out together. I, I think that it will not make the regular season less meaningful. Uh, I agree with that. I think it'll make it more meaningful in the sense that more games down the stretch will impact the ultimate championship and that you've got teams that are vying for those four playoff spots, which could be up to six, seven, eight teams down the stretch. Whereas in the, in the BCS era, um, the focus was much narrower down the stretch. Now, does any one single regular season game, will it continue to carry as much meaning as it did before? Probably not. But that, to me, doesn't equal a less significant regular season. I mean, does... No, because you're bringing more possibility. I mean, no, a game yeah. for a certain team could actually mean just as much, right? Because yeah, they can and, get into and, that four and spot. And even if it doesn't carry the same win or else significance, that to me will not translate one iota to less intensity on the field. I just don't believe that. I think you look at Auburn and Alabama at the end of the year and everything that game was, the tremendous tension and drama, and it's a rivalry game, I get it. But if you'd said, hey, even if Alabama loses this in a four-team playoff, there's still a pretty good chance they wouldn't fall that far. I don't think they're going to play the game any differently. You play it to win it. And and so Will it Alabama you... would have been able to, to get into the playoff, even though they lost to Auburn this past year. If it had been four teams, it, is it very likely that Alabama would have been right there at number three and you'd have had a rematch in a semifinal of Auburn-Alabama? 
And then it would have been the conversation about the fourth team, whether it's Michigan State or Stanford. You know, at the time, they hadn't played in the Rose Bowl, so right. he would have had the tough choice to make. And there'll be plenty of tough choices and lots of controversy when oh, this sure. committee meets. And that's okay. The sport's going to always have that. Will it change where you go, do you think, at all? Um, I think you always want to go to a place where there's a playoff significance at the end. I mean, we're yes. going to wait and see, Brian. We, you know, we don't know. I, mean, I think it's an improvement because it's a, a fairer system. I never liked the BCS formula. I don't think the poll should have played a big role. I like the selection committee. It'll be controversial. The, the makeup of the committee will be scrutinized. Their background will be scrutinized. They're going to put out a, a top four because they're very mindful and, in my view, worried about the negative blowback, especially in, in the first years of this. So they're not going to go, presto, surprise, here's our four teams, the way the basketball committee does when they release the bracket. They're right. going to, as the weeks unfold nearing the big announcement, let people in on who, here's the top four, here's how we sort of see this at the moment. And so... They'll take heat immediately. Well, what's interesting is a but game between be out over weeks. A game that'll have massive significance will be if four and five play each other. Yeah, right. And then suddenly you understand. Well, I think that I think the one thing the BCS did is that it made the different regions more interconnected. And that if right. you cared about the BCS, you you know, all of a sudden fans are watching Oregon play Stanford, or they're watching late in the season. Is Kansas State going to get out of Baylor with a win? Because when when they stumbled, that that opened the door back up to Alabama getting getting back in the championship game a couple of years ago. So, you know, those kinds of things, the interconnected nature of the games, I think, will make fans pay attention, and and they'll have a hell of a stretch run in the same way that you have teams battling for playoff positions. I think that the inevitable reality is is that you'll have the bracket grow. We'll see how this works. I the minute so. that like the Big Ten champion, who like a Michigan State team, gets excluded. Because they're number five, and the committee didn't. Then everyone them. go. It's oh four is not enough. Oh yeah, you're going to have that. You're going to have plenty of powerful people saying, "Wait a minute, now you get two SEC teams yeah. in there, you get two other teams, but now Notre Dame's excluded. The Big Ten team didn't get in there. I mean, you're going to have uh, a lot of powerful forces conveying the idea they want to th- see this go to eight, and I think it'll happen eventually. Well, what a what a great time for you to have recommitted to college. <laughs> no, right? I mean, a great moment for you to have recommitted to college football and ESPN so that you're right as this thing is changing. I mean, you're the guy who's going to be telling us the story. So it's a great moment. This was great for me, Chris. I really appreciate you coming in and and doing this. Uh, If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Brian Koppelman uh, at Twitter. And Chris is a CB Fowler. And Chris is a funny, good <laughs> tweeter. You you want to follow Chris if you're not uh, already following him. And uh, you're lucky because the, the, the wild card question, which I want to ask you, is going to be, as a Coloradan, let's talk about legalized pot. But we'll leave uh. it. We'll do that next time. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.